and uh, then we'll get started here. How about that? Let's just stand up, say hello to somebody next to you, and uh, I, uh, I love to see everybody say hello to one another. Hey, Paul. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right. Let's, uh, let's get rolling here. That's cool. All right, so one of the things that I have actually, I love Legacy for is that Legacy is a family to me. It's a home to me. And so it really is so special to be able to greet one another, say hello to one another. And uh, I love it. I'm very thankful for it. So today what I want to do is I want to talk about greatness, okay? And, uh, and so when I grew up, I had a thirst for greatness. I wanted to be great. And so... And I had a lot of great stuff. I had a great dirt bike. I had a 200 KTM, and nobody in my high school had a dirt bike as cool as mine, as great as mine. And there was a neighbor down the road. He was a great guy. He was a farmer. He was a fisherman. He was a hunter. He could do it all. Like, I really, I saw a deer with a, a homemade arrow through the antlers, and I was like, I bet he made that arrow and shot that deer. You know, he was a, just a cool guy. And so one time, when I was leaving his house, I was hanging out with him. I was like, I'm going to show this gentleman how great I really am on my dirt bike, okay? And so I kicked it. You know, I felt real cool, and I drove into the road. And all of a sudden, I just revved it up and went, and popped that clutch. And it just came right out from under me, okay? And I took off running down the road, chasing the bike, all right? And I, he's watching me go down the road from his house. And uh, I couldn't save it. I could not save it. It kept going faster, faster, faster. I was running as hard as I could, and I just dumped it. And I hit the ground, and I stood up. I had blood all down my hands. And uh, I was like, whoa, that did not turn out like I thought it would, right? And so that was a time when greatness went south for me, okay? But I know that many of us want greatness. I wanted it. And we're going to see in our passage today that the disciples, they also wanted to be great, and Jesus responds to their desire for greatness with an unlikely answer. We want to be great, so we seek greatness by the world's standards. And Jesus tells us we should humble ourselves and be great according to his works and not our own. So let's read the passage. Today I want to look at Matthew 18, 1 through 7. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your church. And I pray, God, that you would use me to communicate your word to your church. And God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would would move in power. And God, that you would convict our hearts and our souls and help us see you more clearly. It's your name I pray. Amen. All right, so really to, to get a grasp of this passage, we need to go back to the beginning of Matthew. And in Matthew 4, 17, it says, from that time... Jesus began to preach. He began his, his ministry. He, and he began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the disciples, they've witnessed incredible things. They've seen Jesus teach with authority in the Beatitudes. They've seen Jesus heal lepers, the blind, paralyzed. They saw Jesus calm storms. The dead have been raised back to life. Jesus had fed thousands of people. They saw Jesus contend with the religious leaders of the day and didn't back down. And some saw Jesus transfigured before their very eyes. And so they're probably beginning to get a sense that, yes, the kingdom of heaven is truly at hand. And so they ask a question. They say, Jesus, who is the greatest, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And sure, there's some reasons behind asking this question. You know, we don't know their hearts behind it, but the Bible does give us some insight to what's going on. And so one of them is that Jesus hinted earlier in Matthew, Matthew 5, 19, that there is a ranking in heaven. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So they know that there's a ranking somehow, some way. And they want to be the greatest. And we see that they themselves, they want to be great. In Luke twenty two twenty four, 24, it says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. So these disciples are fighting amongst themselves as to which one would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so real quick, let's have a quick talk about greatness and let's just kind of define what it is. Greatness has kind of two aspects to it. It has, one, accomplishments and works. And then two, being received and recognized for those works, okay? So that's what I think these disciples have in mind. And Jesus is hearing their question about who's the greatest, and he is just continuing to teach them further about the kingdom of heaven. He's going to teach them about what greatness really is. And here's how he does it. Verse 2, he says, And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. Now children in the first century... They were of much less significance and greatness than men in the first century, okay? Um, Sure, they would grow up, but right now, they were children. And uh, in Judaism, in one of the commentaries I read, it says that uh, children were deeply cherished, but they were also thought to be negligible members of society, okay? They contributed little to society. They didn't have any works. They didn't have any accomplishments, So in that regard, they were not great. Now, I'm sure if you have children, small children, you think your children are great, okay? And I think your children are great. Um, But it is true that they have small accomplishments, and we're proud of them. We love our children. But they don't have any big accomplishments. They got no real reasons for fame and glory. 
Um, even if your child can do sign language, that's the most fascinating thing to me when a child can sign. I'm like, man, they're so smart. Um, even if your child can do sign language and your child can walk or run, okay, and we're proud of them, it's like that is ultimately not the greatest achievement. Okay? I can communicate to you I'm hungry, and I'll race you to the table to get some food. All right? And so uh, they don't have any real works. Um, so what Jesus does is very unexpected in this conversation about greatness. He brings in front of all these disciples a child, a little child. I don't know how old this child was, but in my mind, I'm thinking five. You know what I mean? A small child. Uh, and so, yeah, picture the scene, too. These disciples, they're hungry. They, they want to know. They're asking the question about greatness. They want to know. Jesus, what do I have to do to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's the greatest? And Jesus brings this insignificant child before him in front of him. And all these, these other people, these disciples, are gathered around looking at Jesus, looking at this child, ready to hear what he has to say. And he says something very unexpected. Okay? It probably caught them off guard. It catches me off guard. It probably caught them by surprise. And it probably challenged them just like it, it challenges me and it's going to challenge us today. Here's what Jesus said in verse 3. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so imagine what was going through the disciples' heads in that moment. Become like a child. If we don't, we're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's like, Jesus, maybe you didn't understand the question. We want to know what we've got to do to be great. And so, also, picture these disciples. They're walking with Jesus day by day through everything Jesus has been doing. They're following him. And Jesus is saying, they're being hopeful of this kingdom. They're, they're hearing about this kingdom of heaven. And they, can, they know back in David's day, they know when Israel was, was not ruled by Rome and they could worship freely. They were, didn't have unclean Gentiles all around them. You know, they were, they were their own people. They had freedom. Um, and they're not only freedom, but they were powerful. You know, David, he was a conqueror. And so they're probably looking forward to this kingdom, hopeful of it. And then they're being told, hey, you're not going to get in unless you become like a child. So Jesus continues on his teaching. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, the verb here is humbles, whoever humbles. So the whoever, he's got to humble himself like this child. And if he does that, he'll be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so trying to figure this out, I just I looked up humility. I said, what does it mean to be humble? And I found this, three things, to make low, to bring low. To bring into a humble condition to reduce. To lower or to depress. That's what it means to humble yourself. So these disciples, their greatness is on their, their works, and even good works. You know, Jesus, I cast out more demons than, than uh, Mark did or, or John did. You know, I, I've been with you. I've walked closer with you. I've, I, I got you more water. I, you know, whatever. They could be good works. But these disciples, they're, they're leaning on their works for greatness. And it's very likely, too, that we can relate in thinking that our worth comes from accomplishments. I can, easily. And therefore, worthy of love to be received by others. That's kind of how my brain has been trained to tick. There's a phrase in psychology kind of related to our greatness, and it's called self-worth. 
and I was looking up self-worth, and it says self-worth is this. It's the more global recognition that we are valuable human beings worthy of love. And so this kind of helps me understand my thirst for greatness. What I'm really doing, and I believe what we're all doing, it's a hunger for accomplishments so that we will be loved and received by others. That's what this, this thirst for greatness is. It's a thirst to be loved and received, and therefore we work to earn it. We try to accomplish it. And this is what we're being fed by the world. You know, the world says, hey, you need to see yourself as great and worthy of love. And so I was reading an article in Psychology Today. It gives some advice for increasing your perception of how great you are, of how you see yourselves. And it says this. It says, make three things. One is make two lists. One of your strengths and one of your achievements. The world would say, hey, just look at how Look at how good you are, the good things you're good at. Look at your strengths, and then look at how much you've achieved in your life. You know, you are worthy of love. The second thing the world says, set yourself a challenge that you can realistically complete. I think it's funny. It's like, don't set something too, too hard. You know, you don't want to feel like a failure, but set yourself a challenge, not, not too hard, but something you can realistically complete. And if you do that and you complete it, you'll feel like you're worthy of love, worthy of acceptance, to be received by others. Number three, I think this one's funny too. It says, avoid people in places that treat you badly or make you feel bad about yourself, okay? And so I was like, hey, that is what the world is feeding us. That's what this article in Psychology Today said on how to increase your self-worth. You know, and I think it's, it, we think it's funny, but a lot of people don't. They're serious as a heart attack, and they must have this, you know, we want to be received by others, so therefore... We, gotta, we want to feel like we are. So the world says, fix your eyes on yourself. Improve your own greatness. Make sure everyone sees how great you are, and then you'll be received by others. But Jesus is telling something very different. He's saying to those thirsty for greatness, hey, become like children who are not great by their accomplishments. He says to humble ourselves and become less. Now, he's not saying, hey, woe is me, you know, and, and, and walk around. And, and he's not saying that, that people have no value. Children have no value. But what he is saying, and so we can disregard children or people. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is that your acceptance is not based on your accomplishments. In regards to your accomplishments, you need to become less. You need to become humble. So let's look at some other passages to see how Jesus views us and our greatness, okay? This passage is Luke 17, 7 through 10, and uh, I'm just going to read it real quick. It's not going to be on this slide. It says this. It's, it's, you know, it's very, very different. It says, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly? Serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And so Jesus is telling this to the disciples. And so he's saying, hey, he, see, he says, hey, you are unworthy servants. You are unworthy of being received and accepted. 
unworthy. And the kingdom, your thirst for greatness is very different. You should be humbled for you really don't have any greatness in the kingdom by your own accomplishments. You don't have anything in you for which you should be received and loved. And maybe if Jesus would look at the same list that um, Psychology Today produced, he would just amp up, amp up the, kind of like the pressure on it a little bit, and he would just phrase it a little bit different. He would say, make a list of all the ways that you've obeyed God with a pure actions and pure motives. Go ahead. See how great you are. See how well you've done. I would say, dang, I failed miserably. You know, I can look at the Ten Commandments, and I can just evaluate my own life and say, man, I have lied, I have cheated, I have dishonored my parents, I have coveted other people, I have not worshipped God first, I have I've really not, um, all the Ten Commandments, I have not kept them. I have failed. And if I have done them, I've not done them with a pure heart. Um, and so, too, the world is a challenging place. You know, we're talking about setting challenges. The world is just a challenging place. Um, and it's out of your control, the challenges of life. How well have you represented the God who made you in his image? And I'd say, dang, I, I failed at that one too. Like, I have not represented God. People have looked at me in my anger, in my frustrations, in just, in just blindness and sin, and, and they've not seen Christ. I've not represented God perfectly. I've not. My life is full of things where I've not represented God well. Full of things. And so I would not pass the test, and neither would we. I would bet nobody in here would. And so Jesus, really what's going on is that he sees us rightly. He knows what we know really deep in our hearts. Yet it's very uncomfortable to even consider. Okay, and this is what Jesus really knows. That we're really not great. And if people really knew us, if they knew our hearts, they would know that we're not really worthy to be received by them. That's what's deep in our hearts. And so why children? You know, why is children as the model kingdom citizen? It's not a perfect analogy, but, but little children, they're not as preoccupied with greatness in order to be received by others. And so if you go to a playground or something like that, you'll see this. Um, you'll see kids playing tag, maybe, right? And sure, they want to win. They don't want to be the loser, you know, but, but also at the same time, you'll see Hispanic kids playing with white kids. You'll see poor kids playing with rich kids. They, they don't care about how great they just want to play tag. And they will receive each other, and they will have a blast together. Okay, here's another little analogy of children. Uh, it's, a, it's a kid jumping off a diving board. Imagine a little kid, maybe a five-year-old kid. He's in the pool. He's got his floaties on, right? He's ready. He's on the diving board. He's about to jump into the deep end, all right? And he looks down at mom and dad. They're, they're down there, okay? So he's not just alone in it. He's, you know, he's got, some, he's got somebody who's going to receive him in the water. And so that kid, I'm sure he's not thinking, you know what, I ate all my cereal this morning, and I was really good in the van ride over here. Mom and Dad, they, they must catch me. You know, he's not thinking that at all. He doesn't care about that. He just knows that Mom and Dad love him, and they will receive him. Not based on his own works, but he can trust his parents. And he can jump, 
even though he's not a great swimmer, into the water and be received by his parents. Okay? So children, in that regard, they're actually pretty incredible. Um, but sometimes we see that they're not received. You know, I, I just think of a few times I've just seen kids just bawling and sobbing. Like, you know, Joey didn't want to play with me. He didn't let me play. He was not received, and their heart broke. And, uh, and so I see children like that, but also I see it now. I see whenever I come into a social situation, I could come into church, and I'm not received. There's something in my heart's like, it's just I start to pout. I'm like, oh, I'm sad. Like, they don't want to talk to me. I'm not received. It makes me sad. And I'm willing to bet it makes us sad. And so growing up from childhood to adulthood, we begin to be taught by the world. And we begin to taught this, that, hey, yeah, sometimes you're not received. And if you want to be received, okay, then you need to be great. You need to accomplish things, and then you'll be worthy of being received. You'll be worthy. That's what the world teaches us. And Jesus is coming. He's coming to redeem us from this, from that idea. And so the story of Scripture is one that touches us deepest in our souls. Because I believe it's very, very deep that I want to be received. And it's a very deep felt need. And it starts with this. It says, God is holy. God is perfect in all his ways. He's good in all his ways. And because God is good in all his ways, evil cannot stand with him. Sin cannot stand with him. I like 1 John 1. It says that God is light, and in him is no darkness. 1 Timothy 6, God himself dwells in unapproachable light. And so it's just giving this idea that God is holy, and he is great, and he is good. And in his holiness, he affirms our rebellion against him. He affirms that we have broken his commandments, that we have not kept his word, that we've not represented his image. He affirms it. And therefore, are unworthy, unclean, of love and acceptance. But the, the Bible, the story goes on. So actually, I'll go back. The story begins. In the, in the, it begins with God's holiness, but also we can see in the garden. We see this play out. Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They broke his rules. They disobeyed his commands. They became unworthy of God's acceptance. They were kicked out of the garden. The Old Testament continues, and you have uh, Israel in the desert with the law. And it says, hey, you had to be purified from your uncleanliness with sacrifice. So if you were unclean from sin, or even unclean from just a physical ailment, like you had leprosy, you were unclean. You were unworthy to be accepted, and you were kicked out of the people. You were not allowed in God's presence. In the, in the tabernacle. He would not allow you to draw near. He would say you would die if you did. And so you and I, we're, we're also sinful. We're also broken. We're unworthy, just like Adam and Eve. And not only did Adam and Eve disobey God, but we have rebelled against God. We look at the Ten Commandments again. We lied. We have God's before Yahweh, before our true God, we have not uh, kept his commandments. We are un we're dirty, unclean. But 
This butt is absolutely amazing. But the heart of God is good, and he chooses like a parent to receive all those who receive him by faith. And so John 6 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so here's what the Son did. Here's what Jesus did. Knowing all our sin, our unworthiness, he comes and he lives a perfect life. He never sinned, not once. And he willingly died on the cross and substituted his life for ours so that we can be received by God. Not on the basis of our works, our accomplishments, but on on his greatness and by God's own great mercy. Jesus saved us by humbling himself, by doing the very things that he calls the disciples to do. He humbles himself. He saved us by making himself less. He, He left heaven, entered earth, became one of us. And so I think that's huge just to let that soak in. A perfect, holy, creator God enters into creation. He's rejected and despised. Isaiah 53 says he was not attractive. He was not esteemed by people. He was not seen as great. He was not valued by men. He was rejected by men. In Philippians 2, he says, but he he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. There's something at the end of this verse that's absolutely incredible to me. It says that God does something that you might not have caused. It said Christ emptied himself. He humbled himself and trusted his Father. And therefore he was received and exalted. And so God loves to exalt the humble. I, I look through just passages in the Bible of where does it talk about humble, humbleness, and there is a ton of passages that say God loves the humble. He loves to receive those who are unworthy, who don't have works, but trust him. And so the gospel is this. It's liberating. It says that, hey, yes, you do not have, you're, you're not, your works have not made you worthy of love. They've not made you worthy to be received. But God still receives you. He says, hey, you're, you're mine. I love you. I bought you. I bring you into my family. You don't deserve it, but I love to because I love you like a good parent. And it's a family thing. And you can see other passages in the Bible, you see this play out. So picture this little kid next to Jesus, right? And his disciples looking at this, this kid, being like, I've got to become like that child. And a few verses later, Matthew 19, 14 through 15, it, Jesus says this, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so you see him receiving these, these children that have, they're not, you know, they don't have any works. They're not accomplished. They're not great. And Jesus says, let them come to me. Bring them. 
I want them. And he blesses them. And so we got to change gears a little bit. The next verse, Matthew begins to change gears. Um, Jesus says this, whoever receives one, one such child in my name receives me. And so I love this verse because it's, it's all about Christian community. All right, this is the game changer for Christian community. It's going to help us build a strong community here at Legacy where we receive one another by faith. And so let's look at the word receive. It says to receive favorably, to give ear to, to embrace, to make one's own. To approve, to not reject. That's what it is to receive somebody. And this is what I'm looking for. This is what everybody's looking for. We want to be received, not rejected. But our problem, and it really is my problem too, greatest in my heart, is that, man, I want to receive Christ, but when it comes to receiving Christ's whole church, I'm like, I don't know about that one. And, uh, and if I do receive his church, we receive people based on their greatness as an individual, their accomplishments. You know, they're cool. They're accomplished. They've done things. I want to hang out with them, be part of them. Um, we easily connect with people that uh, are the same as us, but people who are different than us, we tend to avoid and not receive. And like I said, when we do this, we're receiving each other based on our own view of what great is, our perceived, our perceived view of worth and value. And so this is not humility, it's pride. It's pride in achievements and accomplishments. And Jesus Christ came to free us from this. He allows us to expose the facts that, hey, we're all, we're in the church, we're all unworthy. All unworthy. No man is worthy on this planet. But yet, we're all received. We're all received by a God who loves us and cares for us. And if receiving others is receiving Christ, and you want more of Christ, then we should be jumping in our seats to receive other people based on faith. We should be glad to receive other people because Jesus says, hey, you are receiving me when you receive my children. When you receive a Christian, you are receiving Christ himself. So we're approaching the end, but we're not quite there. Matthew, he, he goes one more verse we're going to look at, and it's a warning from Jesus. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now, sometimes I need a little warning to help me purge my own sinful thoughts about community. And uh, Jesus is not shy about giving this warning. Uh, and Matthew is, 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 is also phrased in such a way, he says, he's telling that the opposite of receiving one such child he says, if you receive one such child, you receive me. But if you cause one of these to, to stumble, you know, that's bad. And so he's kind of saying the opposite. He's saying, if you don't receive these who humble themselves and become childlike, if you treat them as outsiders, if you lead them to think that they will be rejected based on their accomplishments, or they're not worthy to be received by Christ, and you cause them to sin by doubting God's goodness and his grace and acceptance by faith, then you yourselves, you've ultimately rejected Christ. You're still holding on to a worldly view of greatness, and you've not yet been humbled. 
you are still rejecting Christ and therefore out of the kingdom. And so therefore, he gives this strong warning. He says, you're going to wish you had a millstone around your neck. It's a strong warning. So how we view the church matters. It says a lot about our own relationship with Christ. When we see ourselves as unworthy, we'll gladly receive those who are also unworthy yet received. And so we're heading home. Living like this is a life of faith. We trust that Christ receives us based on his love for us displayed on the cross. He does not receive us based on our performance of how valuable we see ourselves. Christ receives us based on his good performance, his character, his steadfast love. In church, it becomes a safe place that our hearts long for. And I want to see this at Legacy. Golly, I want to be the safe kind of person that receives my brothers and sisters. And it is a safe place. I want to be that kind of person, and I want us to be that kind of church. Um, yeah, let me, let me roll through to find my spot here. Although we know, oh yeah, so, you know, it's like, it doesn't say, Jesus is not saying you must receive everyone. But we know, hey, we're no better than anyone. But he's saying for those in the church, those who call themselves Christians, those who know God, receive them. You're receiving me. And so like I said, this makes the church an incredible place. Man, we are free to receive each other based on the gospel. There's not works involved in it. We're free to encourage one another toward Christ and to trust Christ and to keep pushing each other toward the one thing that brings us together and allows us to be received by one another. We're free from performing and trying to earn the approval of God. We're free from trying to earn the approval of others. We can receive each other as family because Christ is in us. And when we receive each other, Christ is saying we receive him. That is powerful and very sweet. So no matter your occupation, a janitor, Surgeon, no matter your sins, pride, self-righteousness, drug history, same-sex attraction, no matter where you come from, you live in a mansion or you're homeless, if you're in Christ, you believe in Christ, you've repented of your sin, and you receive grace through Christ, then you belong to him. And we're in a great family. It's an interesting family, but it's also a real family in a real coming kingdom. So in summary, Matthew's communicating to us what he heard from Jesus, that we are unworthy of love and acceptance. Not to see ourselves as great by the world's standards, but we're to look at a small child in a good home and see that they're not great themselves, but yet they are received, and they're our model. We ourselves are lower, are to lower ourselves, humble ourselves, not to trust in our works and accomplishments, but to trust Christ, and we too will be received by him. We're free to receive all other believers and build a strong community with a strong hope in Christ, looking to the day in which we will see Jesus face to face. Okay, if you'll stand with me, I've got uh, one more verse. The worship team can come up. And I want to close with this. John 1, 9 through 12. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the right to become children of God. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for, um, God, just your word. I thank you that you are good in all things. I thank you that you receive those who are unworthy. God, you are gracious and merciful. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's what your word says about who you are. And God, I just confess that there is so much need for repentance that I have received people based on their worth and value that I think they have. But God, I pray you would grow us as a church. Grow us to receive one another based on your gospel. And God, we would be encouraged by each other, and we would look forward to the day where we see you face to face. Hey, thank you. Amen. He placed it on his son for them. He takes your lies, your deceit, your malice, your sloppy need for approval, my desperate need for control and power, and he drives it into his hands and feet because he loves you. Amen. He buries it in his side. He, he was pierced for our transgressions. Right? Our transgressions. Guilt, guilt is a disease. Amen? It's a disease that's plaguing a lot of you in the room this morning. And it plagues me. It knocks on my door often. But this is the cure. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. You already know where I'm headed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it'll, it'll be on the screen. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the best sermon ever. That's the best sermon ever. You need to put that on a bumper sticker. It's way better than any other thing you got printed on a t-shirt right now, I promise. That's the one you need to proclaim. That's the message we need to be bringing to Knoxville. North, east, south, or west. That's the message that they need to hear. And the nations, by the way. You no longer have to blame. The blame is taken for you, despite you. Let me close this up and, and bring this around. Let me speak to all the parents and future parents in the room. I'm going to make this real easy. So God literally, if you don't hear anything today, hear this. God literally created us with high expectations. Would you agree? Wanting nothing but the best for his children. Right? Read about the garden. It was amazing. Right? Read about that for a little bit. He wanted nothing but the best. He set us up for the best. Then we were dumb. <laughs> right? Then we were dumb. And we made dumb choices. Sound familiar? Moms, dads, future parents, pay attention. Then he verbally tells us how to behave. He literally tells us after that, after we screw up, he literally tells us how to behave, what's right and what's wrong. It spends thousands of days repeating himself over and over and over again. And at one point he says, this isn't working, so I'm going to take everything away. I'm going to strip humanity down to one family. And that one family climbed off a boat and started acting like idiots again, right? So then he sends himself to rescue us at his own loss, costing him the most. He shows up in our most desperate state to climb on a device that we invented to inflict pain. Think about that for a moment. He climbs up on a device that, that we invented to torture one another to death. 
And with every strike and with every hit of the nail, he pleaded not guilty over your life. He pleaded not guilty over your life. Have you, any of you ever hammered a nail before into a piece of wood? If you haven't, you ought to try it. It's not as easy as you think it would be. Some of y'all, if y'all ever, I grew up working with my grandfather and he taught me how to hammer a nail. And it was one of the stories when my, when my dad married my mom, he didn't know how to drive a nail into wood with a hammer. My grandfather taught him. He's a grown man. So when I was real young, he taught me. But I always thought, I should be able to get this in with three hits, you know? Like it shouldn't be that big of a deal. So it's hard. So when you think about those nails, and you think about those spikes being driven into Jesus' hands and his feet and then through the wood. Know that every hit, every blow, he was pleading not guilty over you. He was taking the guilt. He was taking the blame for all of what you have done, are doing, and will do. Don't forget that. If you don't love Jesus in here this morning, there's no perfect person sitting next to you. Remember, you just pointed at him at the beginning and told him it's their fault. We're saints and sinners. This is the gospel. This is why you're here today. This is why you introduce your neighbor to the idea that there's more to life than the American dream. Right? But where do we fall short this morning? Do we know this? Do we want to get to know this? This is how we meet with Jesus. I tell my people this all the time. I meet with them, and they tell me, I just want to hear from God. Well, then read the Bible. This is literally how you hear from God. Now, some of you would argue that you can audibly hear from God, and I'm not dismissing that. But, but would we all be on the same page if I said, if you read this, you hear from God? Because he tells us this is a living, breathing word. This is how we grow our relationship with Jesus. This is how we become, you want to become a better Christian? I hope you don't become a better Christian. I hate that word, better Christian. I want to close with this, that this morning, the guilt that you're carrying for whatever reason, let it go. Let God have it. Give it to God. Give it to Jesus. That's what those tables are back there for. I challenge my people every week not to just walk back there and eat a stick of bread. Go back there, and before you ever do that, repent. Re lament. Maybe some of you are struggling, and you're upset, and you're asking, where were you, God? Marriages, parenting, jobs, bank accounts, 401Ks, whatever, cars, I don't know. Maybe you need to lament, but then you need to repent, right? You need to repent and ask God to forgive you where you failed. How about this? I had this conversation this week. We need to stop asking God. I believe we need to stop asking God to give us things. It's not bad to ask him to give us things. But if we take more of our time and spend thanking him for what he's given us, that changes things a bit, right? Because I've seen him work like that in my life. God, when am I going to get this? Right? God, when are you going to give me 40 people in my church? When are you going to bring us 40 people, God? When? 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 When is it going to happen? We didn't grow for six months. We had one visitor in six months. And I spent six months asking God, when are you going to send people to this church? You told me to do this. 
You told me to, God. Where are the people you promised to send? And then finally, someone said to me, Chris, if you're not satisfied at 25, you won't be satisfied at 250. And I was like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. Then I waited and I prayed. And I started thanking God for who he had sent. I started praising him for the people he had given us, the 25 he'd sent. Amen and hallelujah, right? Thank you, Jesus, for sending those people. And I stopped asking. And then one Sunday, 12 new people walked into our gathering. 12. For us, it's like 300% growth, right? That's 300%. That's a big number. And I don't think it's plausible mathematically. I don't know. But whatever. 12 people. And then I sat there in disbelief. Like, what? And my wife said, we've been asking him. And I'm like, yeah, but it wasn't until we started thanking him for what he had given us. When I stopped carrying the guilt of not crushing it, when I stopped showing up to those weekly meetings with Luke and, and, and telling him and crying on his shoulder about it's not going to make it, I don't know what's going to happen, when I stopped doing all that and stopped bearing the guilt and the, and the burden on myself to be approved of and started thanking God for what he's already done, what he's already brought us, and if he kept us at 25, then we'd be fine. When I started thanking him for that, everything changed. So I ask you, I challenge you this morning, it's okay to ask God for things, but shift your way of thinking and thanking him for the salvation he's already granted to you. Thank him for already removing the guilt that you're going to feel tomorrow. Amen? Let's stand up and we're going to sing. Close us out. God, you are, you are all knowing God, you are all powerful, you are all mighty. God, you are awesome. The word awesome means worthy of worship. And I abuse that word because I think tacos are awesome. But God, you're awesome. And as we sing to you this morning, as we sing praises to your name, as we lament, as we repent, God, as we confess, and not to another human being, but to you, the almighty creator of the universe. We confess where we've pointed at you and said, where were you, God? We focus our heart and our attention this morning on what you've already given us. The salvation that comes through Christ Jesus we're thankful for. And so I ask God this morning that you would burden our hearts for that thanksgiving. That we could rest in your assurance and the righteousness granted to us by your son through the power of your Holy Spirit. And as we sing, we're reminded of that this morning. Thank you for my friends this morning, God. Thank you for their love and support of our work in West Knoxville. God, thank you for money they've sent, time they've invested. God, we couldn't be more blessed today. So I pray for my friends this morning that they would hear you, they would believe you, and God, they would love you. I pray that we would change the city because of your son. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.
ashamed of what I've done. What I've become. These hands are dirty. I dare not lift them up to the Holy One. Let's sing that verse again. 